Hey, open up your Bibles with me to Joshua, Joshua 22. We're going to try to be bold, be daring tonight, and finish all of Joshua in one message. So we're in Joshua, sorry, not 22, we're in Joshua 23. Joshua 23 tonight. I am going to read Joshua 23 through 24. And once again, the reason I read is I want you to get the Word of God in your head before I try to attempt to explain what it means and, and how it how it looks in your own life. So be listening to this as if you're listening to this for the very first time. This is a, a glorious uh, series of chapters in your Bible. Um, let's read together from Joshua 23 and 24. Now it happened after many days after Yahweh had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, And Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in years. And you have seen all that Yahweh, your God, has done to all these nations because of you. For Yahweh, your God, is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have allotted to you these nations, which remain as an inheritance for your tribes. With all the nations that I have cut off, from the Jordan, even to the great sea, towards the setting of the sun, and Yahweh your God, he will thrust them out from before you, and dispossess them before you, and you will possess their land, just as Yahweh your God promised you. Be very strong then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you will not go along with these nations, these which remain among you, and you will not mention the names of their gods, and you will not make anyone swear by them, and you will not serve them, and you will not bow down to them. But you are to cling to Yahweh, your God, as you have done to this day. For Yahweh has dispossessed great and mighty nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men will pursue 1,000. For Yahweh, your God, is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So keep your souls very carefully to love Yahweh, your God. For if you ever turn back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them, so that you go along with them and they with you, know with certainty that Yahweh your God will not continue to dispossess these nations from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which Yahweh your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. And it will be that just as all the good words which Yahweh your God spoke to you have come upon you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the calamitous words until he has destroyed you from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. 
When you trespass against the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which Yahweh has given to you. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. They served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all of the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But to Jacob and his sons, uh, they went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I smote Egypt by what I did in its midst, and afterward I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Then they cried out to Yahweh. He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did to Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for many days. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who live beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hands and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them from before you. Then, then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he blessed you repeatedly, and I delivered you from his hand. And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and I drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you. But not by your sword or your bow, and I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them, you are eating the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. So now, so now, fear Yahweh and serve him in integrity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve Yahweh. If it is evil in your sight to serve Yahweh, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. And the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. For Yahweh our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight and kept us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. And Yahweh drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who live in the land. We also will serve Yahweh, for he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, You 
will not be able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve Yahweh. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourself Yahweh to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. So now, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your heart to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve Yahweh our God and we will listen to his voice. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, these two passages that lay side by side in our Bibles. We pray that you would use the purpose of these passages through the power of your spirit to convict us of sin, to convict us of faithlessness, to convict us of laziness in following you. And you would cause our hearts to be awakened afresh to what it means to follow you. And we would, like the Israelites, put away any other gods, any other loves, any other lusts, any other pleasures, any other securities than you and you alone. And we would trust in you solely because of your word, even this night. Be merciful to us and be gracious and help us to grow by your word. Amen. A, uh, a couple was on their first date. And, uh, you know, first dates can be a little bit awkward. You gotta kinda ask questions and you gotta get to know somebody else sometimes because you don't know them very well and that's the whole reason why you go on a date. So you get to know them, obviously. Um, and the girl says to the guy, so, uh, what do you do? And the guy says, after he pulls out a stuffed fox, I am a taxidermist. Interesting. The girl says, oh wow. That's different. But then the fox says, and a ventriloquist. You'll get it later tonight, but uh, uh, ventriloquist, never mind. Okay, so uh, sometimes, sometimes the end of a joke kind of twists the way you understand the whole joke. Oh, I get it. I see what was happening the whole time. That kind of changes the whole thing. Sometimes a twist ending in a movie kind of changes the way you watch the whole movie. As a matter of fact, my favorite kind of movies are the movies with twist endings because I want to watch it again and again and again because the whole movie is now different because of its twist ending. Well, Joshua is over in our Bibles. And it's it's been a... A uh, book of a lot of history, I know, a lot of dirt and a lot of history. But really, one thing I've been trying to communicate to all of you is it's it's been more than history. It's been it's been it's been historical preaching. It's been it's been a sermon. It's meant to drive home a point. It's it's meant to punch you. It's it's meant to to argue for something in you and of you. And now that we're coming to the end of the sermon, we're really coming to the punch, the, the end, the thing that, that all of the stories and all of the drama has been building up to. It's been building up to a sermon, application. Here's the point, O Israel. This is what I want to communicate to you all. But now as we come to the end of Joshua, 
we not only have a punch, we also have a punch and a left hook, a twist, a surprise. We're expecting the punch, but we're not expecting the left jab. But I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Let's unpack the, the final punch of Joshua in the following ways. First off, I want you to note the case, the case, the contention, you could say. I, I love listening to MacArthur preach because every sermon he describes as an argument. And you can see his argument is, is building. Once again, every argument or every sermon is an argument. And this is what the book of Joshua is doing too. It's an argument as well. It's making a case. It's making a contention. It's, it's supposed to drive you to a conclusion. And what is that conclusion? That God is faithful. That God is absolutely 100% faithful. And it's meant to even paint you into the corner with God's faithfulness. So that you can't escape the fact that God is faithful. And that's what we see here in these last sermons. Joshua. Joshua is painting Israel and us as well. He's painting us into the corner of God's faithfulness so that we cannot escape the conclusion that God is faithful. How does he make the case for God's faithfulness? Well, notice verse 14 of chapter 23. Notice he basically says it. All has come to pass. Not one word of God's has dropped. Not one word has failed. You have seen every promise of God faithfully fulfilled. And you yourselves know this. And, and if you've been at Anchored for the last semester, you've also seen it, right? God has been faithful in every one of his promises. But, but look at the case that the author further makes for the faithfulness of God. Verse 9 and 10, you see that. He has, or chapter 3, chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, you see God talking about how faithful he has been. Verse 9 and 10, you also see that Yahweh has been faithful. Notice Yahweh your God is he who fights for you, just like he promised he would. And there's an implication here, right? There's a, there's a punch that the, the message wants to make. Look, if he's been faithful already, he will be faithful to complete the promises that he has made. Verse 5, he will continue to be faithful. In chapter 24, 3 through 13, Joshua gives kind of a, a history lesson. We went over this kind of in our first message in Joshua just to get us up to speed. But notice what the history lesson is trying to communicate about our God. He's, it's trying to communicate that God is what? Faithful. But notice exactly how Joshua wants to communicate this. He says, notice, notice the presence of God's faithfulness. God has been present and been faithful in his presence with you. Maybe you picked up on it, but in chapter 24, notice all the eyes. Notice all the first person verbs. God is saying, I have done this. I have done this. I have done this. 20 times there is a first person verb. God wants Israel to focus on him. All of this, all of this from Abram in Haran, from Abram in Ur, all to this day is because God. That's the only conclusion that Joshua wants you to make. And Israel should be thinking this, right? Our very existence comes from God and from his mercy and from his faithfulness. 
You owe a lot to the mercy of God. You owe a lot to the grace of God. The, the very fact that Israel, you get to stand here and hear this sermon from God calling you to faithfulness is a grace in itself of God. And that also is our opportunity as well. Whenever we hear the message, uh, any sermon preached about our God calling us to respond to him in faith, that is a mercy of God to even hear that. Our very existence even here tonight is because of God's grace. Notice the presence of God's faithfulness, but notice also a little part of this sermon. Notice also the gradual pace or the pace of God's faithfulness. Uh, From our view, God moves slow, right? And, And we see that even in chapter 24. God seems to move pretty slow. He says, Abram, I'm going to multiply your seed. What does multiply mean? Turning one into what? What? I didn't hear that. Multiples of one. Yeah, that does. Yeah, but we all know that breaks down really fast. Okay, but, but notice, notice the, the terrible multiplication here, right? I'm gonna make, I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna give you one son. That's, that's not very good multiplication in my mind, right? No, 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 notice God's moving slow. And then even when he does have a son, that son only has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And then notice Jacob, the one son, the son who doesn't have the promises of God, what does he get? He gets to instantly enjoy his inheritance, verse 4 tells us. But what does Jacob get? What does the the son of the promise get? He gets to go down to Egypt and go into slavery. God doesn't work on our timetables. God's pace of his faithfulness is slow, is gradual. And if you are in the habit of Yahweh watching, like some people maybe here are in the habit of bird watching, uh, you might be confused. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. God doesn't seem to be present at all. He seems to be doing nothing. He's a do-nothing God. But that's because Yahweh's timing and Yahweh's pace isn't like our pace. And sometimes he is working in ways that we cannot see. Yahweh's pace is great, is, is, is gradual, you could say. But notice also the power of Yahweh's faithfulness. This is something else Joshua is trying to communicate to the people of Israel, the power of his faithfulness. You see it there in all of those, those I verbs, those first person verbs. Verse five, I smote. Verse seven, I put darkness between you and between Egypt. I covered them with the sea even. Verse eight, I gave all of the Amorites into your hand and I destroyed them. Verse 12, I even sent a hornet before you, which if you know your Bibles well, is a fulfillment of Exodus 23. God has been faithful to his promise and God has done all of it with majestic power. But you also see in this sermon uh, the, the purpose of God's faithfulness as well. Why has God done all of this? This is all to fulfill promises. This faithfulness is fulfilling promises that he has made to Abraham. And not only that, it's also fulfilled his own purposes in the Godhead from eternity past to call a man to become a nation so that that nation may become a kingdom through the one man, Jesus Christ. God is doing this for a purpose, and it is to display his perfect faithfulness in Christ as king of the world and crushing the serpent's head. And notice in verse 10, just as he promised to Abe, he would bless Abe. Matter of fact, Balaam tried to curse Abe, but God, because God is 
is, is powerful in his purposes. He doesn't listen to Balaam, but turns it into a blessing. This is the purpose. All of this is making a simple case, isn't it? God has been faithful. You can't argue with this, Israel. God has been faithful. But also, can you feel it? There's also a case, not just for the faithfulness of God, but also for the ferocity of God as well. Notice what he, what he says. Uh, God, uh, God will be faithful to also judge you and curse you if you are faithless to him. Notice chapter 23, verse 16. When you trespass against the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will burn against you, and you will perish quickly from the Land Or notice verse 13, know for certain that Yahweh your God will not continue to dispossess these nations, but what will happen instead? They will become a snare, they will become a trap, they will become whips on your sides, and they will become thorns in your eyes until you perish. Notice, God will use your unfaithfulness to be faithful, but God will be faithful. And that's a fearful thing, because God's faithfulness is ferocious, against sin. It's ferocious against faithlessness. And this is the case, the case of God's faithfulness that the writer and Joshua is trying to make to you tonight. But this case quickly leads to the second point. And let's call this the corner, which I've already talked about. The corner. Once again, Joshua is trying to paint you into the corner of God's faithfulness. And and what is that corner that he's trying to paint you in? He's trying to cause in your heart and in your mind for for you to say, I'm a total grace case. I am I am totally the product of God's grace. As a matter of fact, the, the very opportunity I have here tonight to hear about our God and respond is an evidence of that grace. And I am nothing, actually, apart from God. I exist because of God's purposes and God's pleasure. I wouldn't exist if it wasn't for God. I was created to live a life from Him and through Him and to Him. That is the corner that God's faithfulness is trying to paint. I I exist to respond in obedience and faith and faithfulness to God. And also, I think it's trying to paint you into a corner in another way. You should also respond to all this by, by saying to yourself, I, I do not dare follow any other gods, right? I, I do not dare respond in disobedience to any word that this God speaks. And by the way, chapter 24, 14, and 15, what kind of choice is this? What kind of choice is he making? Option A. You can follow the gods that have failed, fallen, and been beaten. Option B, you can follow the only true God. Option A, you can follow the gods that aren't actually gods. Or option B, you can follow the one and only true God. What kind of option are you giving me? You're not giving me any option. You're painting me into a corner. I dare not follow any other God or worship any other God. And that's the point. That's the corner that we are to be painted into. 
Notice these choices. You, you have a choice between the gods of your fathers. You have the choice uh, of the, the gods of your, your, your memories, your past comforts. Well, I used to be very comfortable. I used to be very satisfied following after this, uh, this idol or that idol. You could follow that kind of God, or you could follow the gods of your near neighbors. You could trust in the lusts, the passions, the comforts of those people around you that look enticing because it seems to work for a moment. You could, you could trust in the things that used to make you comfortable. You could trust in the things that seem to presently make everybody else comfortable. The irony of all this, of course, to Israel is that all of these gods have been beaten as this narrative, this historical narrative has even shown us. But what is it? What is this corner? What is the only reasonable? What is the only logical? What is the only rational conclusion that you should come to? I must serve this God and this God alone. And maybe to you tonight, the conclusion should be, this God is my judge. This God will not take lightly my sin. But I need to run to my future judge to become my present savior. Otherwise, I am lost. And notice the people's instant response. Four times, four times they insist, no, we will serve Yahweh. Four times over. They are painted into a corner. And this case, which has led to this corner, also now has a caution. Also has a caution. Point number three, I want you to also notice the caution. Uh, notice the people are eager to sign up. The people are eager to say, we will follow Yahweh. The people are eager to say, uh, sign me up. Where is the Team Yahweh jersey? I want that jersey right now. There's no other choice. You made an incredible argument. But what does Joshua do? What does Joshua say? Matter of fact, I'll even do you one better. What does every single Old Testament prophet, every single biblical preacher seem to say at this point? Instead of saying, great, let's all stand around the piano and sing, great is thy faithfulness, he cautions and he confronts and he warns and he holds back. He's not interested just in an emotional movement, in excitement over God, over Yahweh, what he has done. He wants to warn. He wants to caution. That's what Joshua does next. And you see that in verse 14 particularly, don't you? He warns. Now, to make a parallel example, maybe you too have heard all of the great and good things that come to you through believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel literally means good news, and maybe you've heard a lot of good news even here in youth group or here at church. You've heard, yes, that you, you are headed for eternal judgment. You will face an eternally holy God to which you have to give an account. And God will cast all sin, not just big sin, but all sin from his presence. He is holy. And maybe you even come to understand that the, the weight of your guilt, the weight of your guilt is heavy because you've come to understand the weight of my guilt isn't even how I, how I feel about my guilt. 
The weight of my guilt is measured by the substitutionary sacrifice that was required to be in exchange for my guilt. The weight of my guilt requires the perfect Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the being who is eternally holy himself, to suffer and die, bearing the wrath of God. That is the weight of my sinful guilt. And maybe you've come to understand that and believe that. And maybe even you shudder under the burden of your sin. And maybe you've also heard the, the good news of the gospel that comes with this, right? That, that a sinner who comes to Christ can actually say, mine was the guilt, mine was the blame, mine was the judge, judgment, mine was the sin, mine was the crime, but his was the burden, his was the bearing, his was the suffering, and his was the dying. A sinner who believes in Christ can say that, can hold Christ as their substitute before God. What do we, how do we respond to that? How, how, how does anybody respond to that? What is the only reasonable, logical response to that? Hallelujah, what a savior, I want that. Theologians call this the glorious exchange. This is one of the most impressive, amazing, wonderful truths that we have in the gospel. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. Or as it says in Isaiah 53.5-6, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our our iniquities, the, the chastening for our peace fell on him. And by his wounds, we have been healed. All of us, like sheep, we have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And what did God do? The Lord has laid, not on us, but on him, on him, the iniquity of us all. And as a result, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, how is that not really good news? How is that not glorious news? You're headed for eternal judgment. Your ticket to hell is already purchased. Your passport will only take you there. It's the only place that will let you in. Because you are a citizen of hell already. In the judgment of God, you are already there. But God, in His grace, sent Christ to suffer in your place. That is extraordinary good news. Who would not want that? Matter of fact, He even suffered the fullness of God's judgment. The fullness of a sinner's judgment that they will experience in hell, Christ experienced fully in His few hours on the cross. 
And, and notice the, the good news is just overwhelming, right? It's not just that you're declared not guilty, it's that you are declared righteous. You have the righteousness of God and Christ on you. It's the only rational, it's the only reasonable response to that to say, well, where can I sign up for this? Where can I get the Jesus jersey? That could be a emotional response that you could easily make. But you got to remember, Joshua and Jesus have a strong caution to would-be disciples who want that for them. Jesus calls you to count the cost. And Joshua also calls you to count the cost. What is the cost? Well, first off, let me say, if eternity means anything to you, the cost is easy and the burden is light. But if right now means everything to you, you will not be able to bear this cost. What's the cost that Joshua demands? What's the cost that Jesus demands? What is the cost? Notice what Joshua says. No other gods. You must serve Yahweh. Matter of fact, in, in verses 14 through 28, of chapter 24, serve appears 15 times in 10 verses. You must serve Yahweh. Uh, chapter 23, 8. Your heart must cling to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Oh, what is an idol? What is another God? Another God is something you sin to get or sin because you don't get. But you must turn away from all other gods and follow Yahweh, God, Jesus, the Lord alone. Are you willing to renounce, leave behind anything that keeps you from loving and following Christ? That is the cost. No other gods. People can't be your God. Pleasure can't be your God. Lust can't be your God. Type of music can't be your God. A certain kind of movie can't be your God. You must be willing to leave all and follow Jesus. No other gods. And also count the cost, count the cost of God's good discipline. You saw that in verse 16, 16 of chapter 23, right? Uh, God uses unrepentant sin in, in the hearts of his people to either do one of two things, to show that they are never believers at all, or to cause them to come to repentance. God uses the judgment of sin to cause you to come to repentance, or to show that you are never truly a believer in the first place. What's, what's the big caution here? Hey, when you get excited and energized by the gospel, which you should... There is a big caution here. You cannot come to Jesus like a cosmic Santa Claus. He's not just here to give you things. He is here to demand things from you. Matter of fact, he's here to demand your soul, your life, your all. When you follow Jesus, it is for everything and in everything that he says. And once again, if eternity matters to you tonight, that burden is easy. And Jesus is a wonderful master. But if the present is all that matters to you today, you can't do that. You don't want that. You can't have that. Now, once again, this is a demanding God. 
He gives you uh, the freedom of justification by faith alone, apart from works of our own, but he also demands great things of us. This God demands all of us. You are exactly correct if you are feeling at all pressured or worried as you are painted into the corner by this case. But he, he aims for more than just a caution. There's also a, a crisis that he wants you to feel. And so that's my, my final point that I want to make to you. Notice the crisis. Here's that twist, that, that left hook that I was talking about at the beginning of our message. It's, it's hard not to feel a sense of foreboding here at the end of Joshua. And, and it, there's something bad about to happen, right? And you don't need to go to Joshua chapter 2 to figure that out. You can already tell in this chapter, in this book, that something is not right. God has shown himself to be perfectly faithful to his people, but there's also this already a weak sense of, I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think they're going to make it. I don't think they can follow God in the way that he demands. And notice even what Joshua says in chapter 19. People are all excited. And he says to them, you will not be able to serve Yahweh like this. For he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions. He will not forgive your sin. What a shock. What a sh- what have you been preaching for for this last two two chapters, Joshua? You're totally killing the moment. What are you saying? He, he's saying here here it is. Here's a three-point sermon right here. Why was my point my my sermon not three points? I don't know. But it's a four-point sermon. But here's his three points right here, right? Um, uh, God has been faithful to you. You must be faithful to him. And now his third point is you can't do it. What is he saying? You're not good enough. You are not able to be God's people. You can't be faithful in the way he demands. Discipline will come your way. Judgment will come your way. It doesn't matter how serious you are. It doesn't matter how much you want to be on God's team. You can't do it. Because our God is holy. Because our God is jealous. You will come into judgment. It's too holy. You are too sinful. Your sinfulness will be consumed by his holiness. Now, what in the world's going on? What is Joshua trying to do here? Now, in my humble estimation, a lot of commentators, I think, skip over this part. Yes, God is demanding, God is demanding serious soberness to us. But it seems as though Joshua is also trying to communicate something even more incredible to us this evening as well. He intends there to be a real crisis. How can I do it? How can I follow Yahweh? This is the same crisis, by the way, that Moses has when he is talking about the covenant as well in Deuteronomy 30. He basically says the same thing. You will not be able to do this. 
There, there is a heavy cloud, in fact, over the entire Old Testament when you speak about God. You, you can't. You can't do it. You are not able to follow him. You see, all, all of the Old Testament, all of the prophets, all of them are looking and longing for this kingdom that God is going to bring on earth. But all of them know until God can permanently remove sin, and until God can completely transform someone from within, there is going to be no kingdom because no one is good enough to enter or be faithful to our God. Or to say it this way, the Old Testament is longing and looking towards Jesus and the new covenant that he brings. Joshua paints us into a corner, and it's a crisis for sure. But, but notice, the Bible is wanting us to pant after something more. Jesus, a better sacrifice. And, and even with the new covenant in Ezekiel, we find out, and, and in Jeremiah, we find out, we, we find a, a covenant that also transforms us from within so that we want new things. We have new life. We are radically born again. That's what we need. We need a complete perfect substitutionary sacrifice and that's what we have in jesus and we need a complete radical being born againness and that's what happens in the new covenant have you come to christ if you have come to christ you have come to a better covenant if you have come to Christ, you have come to a perfect and sufficient sacrifice. And if you have come to Christ, you have also come to the power of the Spirit, transforming you from within. And don't you see the goodness of the gospel that the Old Testament longs for? You see God being fully faithful to accomplish everything. Now you may say to me, how do I come to Christ? How, how can I possibly come to Christ if it's too much? You come with nothing. You come with nothing. You say, God, I have all of the sin. And I need all of your mercy and your grace to forgive me and even to transform me from within. I don't care about my life. I don't care about what it does to me. I don't care about what it does to my friends. I don't care about what happens to my future. I need to be right with you through Christ. And I need you to transform me from the inside out. If you've come to Christ, you've come to love so amazing. You've come to love so divine. And notice, you've come to a love that will transform your soul your life, and your all. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening. We've just been in your word. Pray that it would be helpful. Pray that it would be damaging to pride. Pray that it would be humbling. And I pray that it would be exalting to you. Amen.